All right. Actually, this time we're a, we are in the week of the reading of Ha'azinu. It will be this coming Shabbat. Instead of having been read the past Shabbat, it's this coming Shabbat. So we're actually ahead, a few days ahead, but we're going to be um, reading it behind time again. I'm planning to, hopefully, Bezrat Hashem, have the reading of Breshit that we're going to uh, we're going to go through that. I hope for two weeks, so that we'll have plenty of time to spend on it because it's a really there's so much in that parsha that I don't want us to rush through it. And I know two hours sounds like what are you talking about rushing? But I want us to do some interesting things with it. Hazinu is also a very interesting parsha because we're wrapping up the Torah, all of the things that have come before. We had the um, blessings and the cursings. We had, you know, where the people are are having to think about the fact that every action they they would do has a reaction, has a consequence. And so now Moshe is saying this poem to them to the people of Israel that he had started we ended with this last week in Ve'yelech Moshe spoke in the ears of the entire assembly of Israel the words of this song until the end that's how the last parsha ended and then Ha'azinu is the song now in the Torah in the Tanakh rather we there are very important things that are said to us in the form of song and those songs are called shira each one is called a shira and there are ten she wrote what this is is it's a prophetic song and there are ten of them in the Tanakh and the first one was composed by Adam in the Garden of Eden when he composed the song for the Sabbath day which is in the Psalms found in the Psalms and the second one is on the shores of the Red Sea Moshe and the B'nai Israel sang the Shira um, for their deliverance from Paro when the army of Paro were drowned in the sea horse and rider thrown into the sea this was the Shira of Moshe B'nai Israel chanted a song in praise of the well of Miriam and this was in Parshat Hukat that we read about that Moshe taught the people the song of Ha'azinu which we're going to read tonight on the day of his passing this was the day, last day Moshe was in the world when Yahushua fought the Amorites in Givon the sun miraculously stopped its course for the sake of the conquering Jewish army and Yahushua sang Shira and the story goes that the son said to him how dare you you're, you're just a mortal being how dare you stop me in my course across the sky because this is the reason I was created and so you're interrupting the shira that I sing to the creator which means the purpose of his creation and so Yahushua said I will sing shira in your place and this was the shira that was sung by Yahushua Devorah and Barak 
composed Eshira, and this is the half Torah of the same Parsha uh, Beshelach of the crossing of the Red Sea. We read those two at the same on the same Shabbat. And they composed this Shira when God delivered the armies into their hands, including the Canaanite general Sisera. And this is found in the book of Judges, in the fifth chapter. When Hannah gave birth to Shmuel after being childless for so many years, she praised Hashem with a prophetic song, and this is found in Shmuel, or Samuel, 2. King David, at the end of his life, composed a shira of thanks to Hashem for saving him from his enemies, and that is in 2 Samuel 22. King Shlomo wrote Shir Hashirim, that Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, and that's the ninth one. And then the tenth one is the greatest song that will be sung by the Jewish people. And this is when God redeems us from the present exile. And so this one is yet to be, yet to come. And all of the nine um, songs before that are called Shira. And then the tenth one is called Shir. The difference between those words is Shira is feminine, indicating that it's progressive, it's with something left to be done. And Shir is complete, it means it's masculine, it means it's complete, it's finished. This is the tenth sh- uh, song, and it marks the end of all exiles, to where there will be no more suffering, no more hardship. And so this is a song that is yet to be sung. It's the sheer of praise to Hashem for the ultimate redemption. So our reading is going to start in the 32nd chapter of Devarim, if you want to follow it. But it's interesting to look at the songs that are sung in the Torah, the songs that are are listed. It's very important way of communicating something deep. So this was the song sung by by Moshe to the people. Something that they had to remember on the very last day of his life. And we're gonna go verse by verse. Incline your ear, O heaven, I would speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So he is saying to heaven and earth that they are witnesses of what is going to be said. Heaven and earth are the witnesses. It's not the only time, this is not the first time that he called heaven and earth to be witnesses. To be witnesses of the covenant, to be witnesses of the Torah that is given to the people of Israel. And everything that has come before that the people said we will hear and we will do or rather we will do and we will uh, hear they were taking it upon themselves. So he is calling on heaven and earth to be witnesses. This is a very important thing. He's um, using the word here incline your ear rather than just listen He's saying, incline your ear. It's a deeper thing, a deeper hearing than just hear with your, just hearing. It's deep. And let the earth hear my words, so that my teaching 
may penetrate like rain breaking up the soil, that my promise may flow gently like the dew, like rainstorms on the meadow, like pouring rain upon the grass. And the words that he uses here is the same word, is a similar word to um, the word for being stiff-necked. Kashe orech, stiff-necked. And so the word he uses here for breaking it up, breaking up the soil, is Ya'aroch. And it gives this impression like the rain coming down and breaking up these hard clods of dirt. The reason that he's using this term is because he's already used the term stiff-necked to the people of Israel. And so now he's using the same word for the rain coming down and breaking up these hard clods of dirt. Like they would be very difficult. It would it would be very difficult to break it up. But the rain coming down is like the words of Hashem coming down and breaking up these hard clods. The same way that we be softening up the person's neck. And the neck is supposed to be it's this joint. You can you can nod your head up and down. You can look up. You can almost look back. You can turn your head from side to side. It is the most flexible joint in the body. But the person gets a stiff neck. You know, it's like I'm not going to. This is why the reference is to this that this can be the most flexible part of the body. But yet, a person says, no, I'm not. He stiffens up his neck. And it's like these clods of dirt that are like rocks. That they get so hard, they're like rocks. So this rain coming down, he's using that same terminology to bring the people's thinking back to what he had said before about being a stiff-necked people. Not being a stiff-necked people. To be able to be pliable to Hashem to listen to his words and let them penetrate into our heart. But here he's talking about in general. It's an introduction. It's general. Hashem's relationship to the world and to Israel. It's the first section. For it is the name of God that I proclaim. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of trust and no violence, righteous and upright is He. He's called the rock. He's called Sur. That He is our rock. That we can depend on Him. That it's a firm foundation. That it won't slip. It won't slide. That He is a firm foundation. And that we can trust Him. Because He is our rock. And He remains the same. He does not change and when he wields justice, he does so in a way that is best for us. So this is what it means by, and no violence, that he does not wield his power over a cre- any creature merely for the sake of manifesting his power. That he does so, his justice is truly just. It is truly um, it's filled with mercy. Now, a lot of times we get confused about the ideas of justice and mercy. 
we get confused about what they mean. But Hashem is, as He says, that He is trustworthy, that He is righteous. So, a lot of times when we think about the term justice and judgment, we think in terms of harshness. We think, oh boy, here it comes. He's going to smash me now. Instead of being the rock that is our foundation of being um, unmovable and that we can depend on him and all, we think of the rock as being something that's going to smash us to pieces. And that's not the way we're, we need to think of Hashem. This is a wrong way of thinking. And a lot of times, the way we think of Hashem reflects the way we look at other people. The way we look at, particularly, a lot of times, it reflects how we look at our own father. Now think about that. How we look at our own father. If we have a father who is trustworthy and he's a good man and so on, it's easier for us to have a good relationship with Hashem. But if we have a father that we can never trust what he said, that he was abusive, that he was uh, a rascal, then it affects our ability to have a relationship with Hashem. This is the reason that there are so many laws about the relationship between parents and children. Because the way that the child looks at the parent is going to have an effect on how he looks at Hashem. So let's go on and then I want us to stop for a moment. Their mortal frailty has corrupted it to become non-children. A generation persistent in crookedness, breaking away in opposition. Pray, ask yourself, is this how you would repay God? O people withered and in no way wise. So, what I want us to do with this now you see that if you're looking at the whiteboard that each part of this is broken into it's broken into parts and the first part we've gone through and it talks about the relationship of God to the world and to Israel now this is a very important thing but first and foremost in order for us to understand the relationship of God to the world and to Israel or to our nation to the world we have to understand also his relationship to us and what I was talking about a minute ago about his relationship to us is being is affected our relationship with him rather is effect is um, a lot of times affected by our relationship with our Father. So I want us to, here we are in these days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I want us to, for about five minutes, I want us to have, do a meditation. I want us to just close our eyes for about five minutes and I want us to think and breathe deeply and I want us to think about what is each one of us and if you don't want to share it you don't have to but think 
what is my view of God? What is my relationship with Him? How do I view God? How do I truly think of Him? Okay, so we're going to start now.
so many times what we find ourselves thinking about God is what we feel like we're supposed to think and it's difficult for us to get in touch with how we really feel that's why I wanted to ask that question and if you don't want to share that it, it can be very very personal for you but it's a very it's a very important starting place for you to examine in your heart how you really do feel about God what is your view of him not what somebody told you to think or what somebody says is the right thing to think but first start with what you really feel and what you really think then look to the Torah and this is what Moshe is saying to the people to allow themselves to be pliable like the rain is coming down and it's hitting these claws of dirt and breaking them up allow themselves to be pliable and the, the rain coming down is the Torah allow the Torah to shape your heart's view of God this is the first thing it's impossible for us to keep the first commandment to love God with all our hearts it's impossible for us to refrain from idolatry if we have a problem with our view of God and so it's very important for us to first examine our hearts and be honest with ourselves and you can write it down someplace honest with ourselves about how we view God honestly and then say Hashem I want my view of you to be in line with the Torah I want it to be healed in me because if you have a, a view of God that is wrong then it's it's a an indication that there is a place in your soul that is deficient that needs a healing and this can only come from Hashem himself that he can bring you to a truth a true vision of him and that's what this Parsha's name means is a vision Ha-Ha-Azinu means the vision actually it's incline your ear but it's the vision also so in the sixth verse it says pray ask yourselves is this how you would repay God oh people withered and in no way wise in the Hebrew you see this larger um, I don't know if all of you have a Hebrew version but there's the the hay is written larger in the very first part of verse 6 it's written larger than the other letters and this is an indication of saying of, of what it's saying pray ask it doesn't spell that out but in English we understand that to mean pray ask yourselves so, so what Moshe is saying here is to look in your heart to look within yourself he's saying exactly what I just said look within yourself and ask yourself about your relationship with Hashem how you are repaying Hashem if you are truly able to connect to the Torah and to to listen to his words and to obey them first it has to come from a deep place within yourself it can't just be in your head it can't just be intellectual knowledge like I read this and yeah it sounds good but I'm going to do whatever I want 
it has to go deep deep within you to transform your soul and you then it becomes your nature to do those things that he asks of us in the Torah does anybody have an, a, a question or a comment on this first section Okay. So the last part of verse 6 says, Is he not your father who calls you his own? Did he not form you when he gave you your purpose? And this is something that speaks to each one of our souls, that each one of us was formed in his image, and each one of us has a purpose, that each creature, especially mankind, but each creature is held before the throne of Hashem, and we've talked about this before and we're, t- and we're shown this is going to be your form this is going to be your purpose in the world and we're not allowed to leave until we say Amen and accept it it says do you want to be created and we say yes I want to be created in spite of the suffering in spite of all of the, the challenges of life yes I want life yes I want to be created and then sometimes we have this tendency because we forget about that. We, we don't, we're not aware in our consciousness. We're not aware of that. So we sometimes, when the suffering comes and all these things come, we have a tendency sometimes to blame God. How could he do that to me? You know, how could this happen? It's not fair. You hear people say that. And so he's wanting us to understand that we have purpose so we came into the world with purpose I'm breaking up okay alright I I don't know what to do about it but okay now the next section is about Israel's destiny and origins now this is a very interesting section and and the comment of Rob Hirsch about this is so interesting. It was something I had never encountered before, and I want to. And I'm going to read it because it is a completely. I mean, I had an inkling of this from other writing, but he brings it all together in such a beautiful way about what is different about Israel from the other nations. It's really interesting. Um, way of of seeing it. Remember the days of old. Understand the years of the generations. Ask your father so that he may tell you, your elders so they may explain it to you. When the Most High assigned property to the nations, when he separated the sons of men, he set territories of the peoples for the sons of Israel who were yet to be counted. 
For God's portion is his people, Yaakov, the lot of his inheritance. Now this is a very interesting section here that talks about what is different about Israel as compared to the other nations. And we have talked about that in other other ways, but there is something here that is is very pertinent. When the Most High assigned property to the nations, this is a reference to the time when God, who was then honored by the nations at the beginning of time, only as the Most High, among other deities, allowed the nations to take possession of various territories on the earth. So when there was the dividing of the world to the sons of Noah, we read about that in Parshat Noah, how the sons of Noah became the nations, the 70 nations. And he separated the sons of men. Each of these territories was physically different from all the others. Therefore, each territory had its own effect on the people who settled it. As a result, mankind, which began as homogeneous whole, all men being descended from Adam, became diversified with regard to physical shape, mental capacity, language, occupations, customs, and character. Mankind was separated into nations of many kinds, and each of these nations, being a product of its land, came to manifest different aspects of the human personality. He set the territories of people. At the time, he prepared the territories of the nations for the sons of Israel, who had yet to be counted. He permitted a specific territory to be occupied by several tribes. These tribes had to go through the process of acquiring dominion over the land and then being dominated by the land in turn. Now think about that, that the nations had their specific territories that Hashem assigned to them, and when they came to those territories, the land itself had an effect on the people and formed the nation, that the nation absorbed characteristics that became their national characteristics from the territory assigned to them by Hashem. Their land became territories of people, but they would not be allowed to keep this territory because it had been set aside from the beginning for a people that was still in the very early stages of its existence. Now this is talking about Eretz Israel the tribes that were in Eretz Israel, present only as individual members of a certain family. So all the other nations were on their land and became nations on the land assigned to them. Now, there, this is a difference between Israel and the other nations, a big difference. Those nations became nations on their native soil. Israel, however, became a nation where? Israel didn't become a nation on its native soil. Where did Israel become a nation? That's right. Israel became a nation in Egypt. Israel became a nation of 600,000 men 
in Egypt. This was the first and only time that Hashem did this. Created a nation within another nation and brought that nation out that made Israel different. Now there was a reason why he was doing this. For it, for God's portion is his people. This is verse 9. God did not permit the children of Israel to become a nation in the land that was intended for them to develop and grow under the impact of conditions and influences inherent in that land. Unlike all the other nations, God had the children of Israel first become a nation without a land. Only thereafter did he cause them to take possession of a land specially intended for them, a land that had already been fully cultivated and built up by others. Because God's portion is his people, because this nation, being the nation of God, belonging to him, was to become and to remain the people of God by virtue of its becoming a nation. What the soil of their land is to the other nations, Israel's relationship with God is to Israel. The origin and existence of other nations are rooted in the soil of their land. By conquering the land, taking possession of it, cultivating it, and developing it, they turn it into the basis for the development of their society. It is the climactic conditions of the land that then determine the physical, intellectual, moral, and social evolution of their civilization. As a result, these nations come to, the, to deify what they consider to be the forces that shape their civilization. They come to worship these factors as gods on whom they think their development depends. Not so Israel. Israel is to bring into its land its physical, intellectual, moral, and social culture already fashioned by God. It must not permit itself and its national life to be subordinated to the land. Instead, it must make the land subordinate itself and to its national life as fashioned by God. In this manner, as opposed to the aberrations and illusions of other nations, Israel's nationhood, its life, and development as a nation is to proclaim God as the sole true power and the sole true source of the prosperity of all nations. At the time this nation was born, amidst terrible sufferings, God first proclaimed, I will take you to myself as a people. Only after that did he say, And then I will bring you into the land. Other nations are basically the portion of their land, but Israel, by virtue of its origin and purpose, is God's portion. Yaakov, the lot of his inheritance. For this reason, the source of this nation is not called Israel, but Yaakov. This nation began as a family of individuals who, as Yaakov, had no home or land of their own. As such, they had to drain to the dregs the full cup of bitterness handed to people who had neither a land nor a home of their own and who must live in the midst of a nation that glories in its land and its sovereign power, a nation that knows nothing of the innate, inalienable dignity to which every individual is entitled 
simply because he is a human being. In the view of the nations, a homeless, landless people has no human rights and no rights of domicile. Here was Yaakov hanging on the heels of others as it were, with regard to all the values by which other nations define their strength and greatness. Having neither soil nor power, he was inexperienced and undistinguished in, his, in the inventions, arts, sciences, and skills that the human mind acquires in its struggle with nature and with other men and nations for the upbuilding of personal and national lives. Achievements which these nations triumphantly equate with human greatness. Yet Yaakov is the lot of his inheritance. Rejected by the councils of nations because of the threadbare, unprepossessing appearance, Yaakov literally fell to God, as it were, as his own inheritance. The other nations had no use for God and even less for his law. They looked to other gods whose favors they believed made them great. Above all, they defined their lives in terms of other goals and motivations than did Yaakov. In a society which launched the, launched the construction of the tower of historic fame with the triumphant cry, Let us make a name for ourselves, there was no room for a life built on God's dictates of hallowed morality of truth, righteousness, and of loving-kindness, which in every respect was to proclaim the sole sovereignty of God on earth and over all the earth. Only Yaakov, who had nothing of his own, and who had not and could not have received anything from the forces that the nations worshipped as divine powers, Yaakov, who received and could receive everything only from the hands of God, he was the sole instrument suited for the fulfillment of God's purpose among men on earth. Only because he was Yaakov could he be given the mission of being Israel, of proclaiming among men the sovereignty of God, and of pledging allegiance to it by a life pursued in loyalty to his duties. He sought him out in a desert land, in desolation, in howling wilderness. He surrounds him, instructs him, watches over him as the apple of his eye. So he took Israel out of Egypt, the nation born out of another nation, and then formed the nation in the wilderness where there could be no influence from the land itself because they weren't in the land itself. As an eagle first stirs up its nest, hovering over its young, then spreads out its wings, takes it, carrying it aloft in its pinions, so would God lead him apart and no alien God beside him. So without this, this is the reason that um, he formed the nation in the wilderness, gave instruction on, and think about all of the laws that were in the Torah on how to cultivate the land, all the agricultural laws, all the laws of tithing, everything about not planting one species with another species, of how to behave once they would get to the land. And this was the reason. 
was so that the psyche of the nation would already be formed and then impose it upon the land when they would get there, not the other way around. And this was a difference between Israel and the other nations, that the land itself of the other nations that was given to them as their portion by God from the very beginning of time had a bearing upon the development of that nation so much so that the nations would and and I remember hearing a Tibetan monk in India asking me about local gods did I believe in local gods and I said well no because the nations tribes clans, people in all over the world have their local gods and these are bound to the portion of land that these nations had I mean I never really had thought about it so strongly before I had in a way but after I read this commentary of Rob Hirsch it just all clicked and I went oh my goodness this is really true what an influence the land itself had on the people and so when we look at the very first uh, verses of the Torah where it talks about and this is one of the commentaries of Rashi where it says he gets from the beginning did God create heaven and earth even from that verse it's a commentary that from the very beginning of time that it was determined and even Adam had this where he was the one who would make a decision of what areas of the world would be cultivated what areas of the world would be desert and like that not only did he name the animals but that he also had this ability to look at the lands of the world that Hashem showed him the lands of the world and here is man made in the image of God and he is making a judgment he is the judge he's the first human judge and he is making a judgment on the lands the territories of the entire world of what territory is going to be for what purpose and so a people who lives in the desert is going to be a different kind of people than those who live in a jungle those who live in uh, the snowy north of the world where they live in snow and ice are going to be a different kind of people from those who live in the tropics I mean think about it the land itself had a tremendous influence on even the appearance of the people even the appearance of the people it had an influence on their culture what kind of occupations would be by and large the normal occupations of the people it had an influence on their uh, means of survival what was going to be normal I mean they became adept in surviving in their environment and these kind of things formed their occupations their means of survival the kind of food that they could have they, they needed for survival and so on the kind of clothes they needed to wear formed their ideas about God just like we were talking about earlier it formed their relationship it formed their ideas about who God was 
or and then because it was it was in the psyche of man to think well maybe there's more than one god maybe there are many gods maybe there's a god of the sea a god of this a god of that and so this kind of thinking developed and we see that in the very first parsha of Bereshit of Genesis how idolatry formed by and they weren't stupid people they weren't stupid people they saw there was a court of heaven they saw that there were these spirit beings and make no mistake there are spirit beings and then they began to worship these spirit beings and we're going to talk about that in a, in a little in a minute here in the same Parsha where it does talk about that very thing yes I when I read this part um, from Rob Hirsch I was very taken with it and I think and I thought how important it is for B'nai Noach to understand these things to understand how these things developed because once we can understand these things we can go oh and I have the ability to rise above this too I have the ability to connect with one God the creator too I don't have to be bound to these local gods either but just to just see how that developed and it's not saying oh you stupid people no way am I saying that because I'm just wanting to explain how that happened over the centuries of people being being influenced by this Israel influences the land right and Israel following the Torah influences the land this is very very true or not following the Torah right exactly and it's very very interesting to understand why it was that Israel had to be made a nation like it was so differently from the other nations how why Israel had to be made a nation of these sojourners of this family that was just wandering and without home just rootless and just wandering and then became this nation born in slavery and then came out miraculously and developed in the wilderness really when you think about it developing the wilderness where they there was nothing to connect to they had to totally depend upon Hashem because it was a very it was a wasteland there was no food there was no water they were, they were at the mercy of wild creatures it was completely that they had to totally be enwrapped by the Shechina in order to survive and so they were developed for these 40 years of wandering the wilderness in order to be a different kind of nation without any other influence and this was what he was trying to get the people too this higher level of being able to totally look to him in this in this incredible faith and when we look at how Moshe is going to warn the people and then you're going to wax fat 
you're going to come to the land, you're going to feel self-sufficient. He's warning the people about what will happen, and that's in the next section. So I'm not going to get to it right now. But there's a warning to the people. And then when you do come to the land, yeah, that's right. The desert is okay for a small group, but six million is a little, it's a little difficult. So then Moshe is saying, there is a dip, there is a danger. When you do come into this land, there is going to be a danger that the land will have an influence on you, that you will get comfortable because you're going to this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. So let's look at this. He made him climb the high places of the earth. He ate the fruits of the field. He suckled him with honey from the rock and with oil from the gravel of the rock. So after he wakens these people, he's, he's developed these people alone in the desert and he wakes them up and they're brought up to the land and they're going to become to this wonderful land that has the potential has the potential to produce without effort it has this incredible potential to produce without effort there's another place where it talks about and you only had it's not like in Egypt where they have the river you're going to depend on rain you're going to depend on the land itself that Hashem is going to cultivate this land. It has the very it has the it has properties, it has aspects similar to Gan Aden. To where there it would be watered, it was almost effortless to bring forth fruit, but it required the people to have a high spiritual spirituality. And this was the potential of Eretz Israel but there's also a danger when people become complacent they become fat and complacent and this is what Moshe is getting ready to say to them with the cream the cream of cattle and sheep's milk with the fat of sheep and rams bred in Bashan and he goats with fat from the kidneys of wheat and the blood of grapes you drink as fermented wine then Yeshurun became fat and kicked. Overwhelmed you became fat. You became obese, overwhelmed by fat. And he forsook God who made him and regarded as worthless the rock of his salvation. So he became complacent. He, he was... He had all of the, everything he needed physically, materially. Uh, Moshe is warning the people here you're going to have all of this material wealth you're going to be prosperous but that's a danger it's a pitfall it's a challenge so this is the first time in this 15th verse when the name Yeshurun is used it describes Israel in terms of the ideal of its moral calling which is straightness Yeshar Yeshuran Yeshar is straight and we're called to be this uh oh 
We're calling. Okay, there it is. Um, evidently, there's a little bit of a problem with the software. Every so often, it seems to kick me out. It didn't. I get didn't get totally kicked out, but almost. So hopefully, uh oh, there it goes again. I might have to go back out and go out and go back in. I hope not because I'm recording right now. The soft I don't know what's going on with the software. Can you hear me okay? Alright, I see. Alright. Hopefully it'll be alright. But ever so often I get this little uh, message that pops up and it just throws me out. There, there it goes again. Okay, I'm hope. There. I might have to go back out and go go out and go back in, but I'm hoping I won't because I'm like I said I'm recording this. All right. All right. Hopefully everything is going to be all right. So Israel is called to be a straight nation, and that's why the word, the the name Yeshurun is used here. It has an allusion to this, but we're we're told he uses this term to say this is your purpose, this is what you're called to do. But then you became fat, and you became will become complacent with the the richness of Israel. So he's warning the people about this. He wanted God wanted Israel to ascend to the double pinnacle of earthly achievement, the peak of material prosperity and the peak of spiritual and moral perfection. So he's not wanting Israel to just be like monks in the desert. He's wanting Israel to bring this down into the world spirituality down into the world so that the material prosperity in the world can be raised up. It's raising up and it's drawing something down. This is what Israel is supposed to do and show the nations how to live a life in this world that is a spiritual life as well as material. Israel is to be a shining example demonstrating that spiritual and moral life completely dedicated to duty doesn't mean uh, renouncing all earthly pleasures. Indeed, the highest degree of morality is entirely compatible with the greatest measure of earthly happiness. In fact, the former must prove itself precisely under conditions associated with the latter, and all earthly resources and pleasures should be transposed into spiritual and moral accomplishments where they're raised up and actually become mitzvot. That's why there's so much in the Torah about material accomplishments, how to do things in the proper way. It's okay to own property, but we're supposed to be careful about our, our property marks. It's okay to own a house. 
but be sure that you put a parapet around the roof. It's okay to, uh, you know, have things, but you have to have things in the right way. You have to remember the poor. You're not supposed to be selfish. However, when the people of Yeshurun, whose purpose it was to attain this moral ideal, received an abundance of material riches and pleasures, when it came out of the wilderness into a land of milk and honey, it became fat and kicked. Whenever you became fat, you became obese and overwhelmed by fat. Sorry about that, I'm back now. It stood before Moshe and all the future generations was supposed to read this song. It contains all of subsequent Jewish history. As a rule, the Jewish people has proven itself splendid through periods of suffering, but it's not so good during good fortune. So this is what it's referring to by saying when you become fat and kick that during good fortune you're not so you're not obeying Hashem and walking in his ways as well as you do when you're suffering. The sense of this passage is the more substantial and fat the food introduced into the body, the more should the body seek to transform the surplus of nourishment into energy and work. The better nourished the body, the more active should be the person. The greater should be his output of activity and performance. In that case, he will have control over his opulence. He will remain healthy, both in mind and body. And his moral worth, too, will increase the greater moral and spiritual performance. Sorry, it keeps popping out. And this will be his downfall, that he becomes fat, and he, and he kicks, he rebels against Hashem. Instead of using his abundance and surplus for spiritual things, he uses this for the opposite, and he falls, and he becomes a bad example of the nations around him. He becomes a detriment rather than a good example that he's supposed to be. And they impaired his rights with aliens, angering him with abominations. They made offerings to demons, non-gods, deities of whom they knew nothing. New ones that came up of late, whom your fathers never dreaded. So this is talking about the idolatry. This is talking about the idolatry of the people once they would get to the land that they would worship these non-gods these demons alright I just have been having a problem with the software throwing me out and so I apologize for that I'm trying to um, fix it as quickly as I can when it happens so that it, we don't have so much interruption Demons are invisible forces that are injurious to growth and prosperity. And um, I'm sure that all of you have heard of, know what this is. And the deities of whom... I'm not recording anymore.
were the gods of the nations around them. So these were, this was the very reason that Hashem said to throw the nations out so that we would not, so the people of Israel would not be learning new ways of worshipping idols. The rock that hardly bore you when you gave him up to do homage to others and forgot God while he was still forming you. Now forgetfulness is the opposite. And when we have the word remember, in Rosh Hashanah we use this word a lot. Remember me to bring me into your presence. We use the word a lot in our prayers on Rosh Hashanah. So the opposite of this is forget. Now think about the word remember. It's remember. It's bring me up again and attach me anew to yourself. The opposite of that is forget. It's to be detached. It's, it's not having an attachment. So we, when we say we forgot God, we are not attached by forgetting him it's a deeper thing than just saying oh I forgot you know we just think of that as being um, a minor thing remembering or forgetting recalling to your memory as a minor thing but it's a deep spiritual concept remembering or forgetting is a very deep spiritual concept that has to do with connectiveness how connected we are with Hashem how connected we are with another person. We remember him. We, we ask Hashem to remember us, to reconnect us with himself. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a generation of constant changes, sons in whom there is no trust. And this is the um, this is the result, the result of forgetting Hashem, of cutting our connection with Him, that He says He will turn away from us, and it's not forever and always. We shouldn't think that, but even even temporarily, for however long, even a moment is too long to not be connected to Hashem because our very life our very life comes from this connection if we are not connected with Hashem then we are not really alive we can be animated creatures in this world without being alive now think about that for a moment They have invaded my right with non-gods. They have angered me with their trifles. I will have their rights invaded by non-people. I will cause them grief through a withered nation. Now every time we would read this, every year when we will read this passage, what do you think we think about in our modern times? I mean, it was so obvious to us the um, 
The idea was so obvious to us here in our modern times of a people that was never, didn't have a name at all, but it was claiming a name now, but for the longest time it had no name. That was called Palestinian, but for the longest time this people had no name. They themselves in the 50s in the UN said there is no such thing as a Palestinian, absolutely not. Their own representatives said this. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. They were Arabs. They were Arabs from other countries that came together in the land of Israel. And then they called themselves, well, they called themselves Palestinians, and they pretended to be a people. They weren't a people. They were exactly what this says, a non-people. And so when we look at this and we say, aha, we have a non-people right here, Okay, we have non-people right here, and what was the reason? What was the reason was because of the problem of not connecting with Hashem, of forgetting Him, of not remembering every day, reconnecting with Hashem. And so this was the result. This is the consequence of that action. For the fire was kindled by my anger, therefore it burned to the nethermost depths. It consumed the land and its fruit, and set the foundations of mountains ablaze. I will let evil upon evil come upon them. I will use up my arrows against them. Emaciation of hunger, heat of fever, and bitterness of death. The teeth of the beast will I send against them and the fury of things that creep in the dust. The sword will bereave from outside and terror from within, young man and maiden, infant and hoary head. I would say, I will put them in a corner. I will make their memory disappear from among mankind. Now this is also about remembering that he would make the memory disappear from among mankind put them in a corner and make them disappear God says after all this evil had come upon them I could have placed them in a remote corner of the earth and this is what he did do with the ten tribes he put them in a remote corner of the earth to remove them from further ill treatment I'm glad to see you back there, left entirely to themselves, they could become sufficiently mature to engage in serious reflections so that ultimately they will return to me. They will do tshuva and return. That's what tshuva means, is turn around. I would indeed do this were I not deterred by the thought that it might result in even greater trouble for Israel from its enemies. These enemies might misunderstand such a development. They could estrange it from the truth. They might interpret this development differently from what it was meant to be. Hence Israel must remain in the midst of a world hostile to it and to its God, among men even more sinful and corrupt than they. So for the sake of the nations, I cannot put them away in a corner like that true Israel will thus have been exposed 
to continued ill treatment, but this is the one way to avoid results utterly at variance with the purpose of Israel's mission. Instead of regarding Israel's disappearance from human memory as an indication of the working of the one sole God in world history, of his will and his sovereignty, the nations would view it as a triumph of heathen delusion over the truth of Judaism. They would consider God's judgment upon Israel not as the judgment of God, but as a triumph of their own human might. Therefore, in order to disabuse the nations of such illusions, Israel must endure, suffer, and withal survive. And this too, survival, all of the suffering, and ultimately the survival of Israel is a message of God to all of the world, to all of the nations, because this is the nation that he made, that he formed for this special mission to the world. Do, does anybody have any questions at this point? I've just been going um, not into nothing quickly through this. But struggling with this software pitching me out. Not yet. Okay. So now we're on verse 27. If I would not thereby amass unpleasantness from their enemy, their oppressors could misunderstand it. They could say, Our hand is high. It is not God that causes all this. So this is when the nations will say, Israel, where is your God? laughingly and oh it has happened for they too are a nation that perishes in its own plans and insight is not found among them yes that's a great point <laughs> the cutting out of the computer is a good physical example of our relationship with God and that brings us back to our our uh, question that we said in the beginning that we should be thinking about what is our own personal relationship with God if it were wise this nation that is asking saying these things they would turn their mind to this they would discern their own end how should one pursue 1,000 or two put 10,000 flight had their rock not surrendered them and God delivered them up for their rock is not like our rock our enemies themselves are judges of this for their vine is the vine of Sodom and from the open country of Gomorrah their grapes are poisonous grapes clusters of bitterness to them the fury of dragons is their wine and the cruel poison of vipers therefore it lies concealed with me sealed up with my treasuries so if the nations that understood understood what was happening to Israel that in itself would be a message to them 
a message of the need to repent that even the bad things that happen to Israel as well as the good things the good things for sure to show in a positive way what happens to a nation that follows the laws of God but then on the other hand in a negative way what happens to the nation that is given the laws of God and they do not follow them this is also a picture that Israel gives to the world that Hashem is true to his word and that Hashem says not for all time will you be exiled but I will bring you back and this is another picture to the world that Hashem is trustworthy that he is not um, vindictive that he is trustworthy to keep his covenant mine is the office of avenger and retribution at the appointed time their foot will slip now retribution is not necessarily always just smashing them but it's putting things right it's bringing things into balance Uh, when we read this their foot will slip for the day of their smoke cloud is near it rushes toward them in the events to come we think about that as being they're getting, going to be destroyed but not necessarily it means that maybe they will maybe they will be destroyed but it also means making things balanced making things right this is what retribution means when it comes to God being a judge for God will judge his people and reveal himself in a changed decree concerning his servants when he sees that all power has vanished and nothing left to keep or abandon so that nations are going to be reminded of God's power when they see this judgment they see the judgment on Israel through all of time and this is a picture of what of that God is the judge of all the earth because he's also judging their nations in diff, in a different way but he's also judging their nations not only that but he's also judging the gods of those nations now when he sits in judgment this is in the next um He's going to restore the future of Israel. He's going to restore Israel. And he's going to judge the nations. Then he will say, Where are their gods now, the rock, small r, in whom they placed their trust? Those who were to eat fat of their meal offerings, drink the wine of their libations, let them rise up and help you, so that you may have protection. See now that I am indeed I. I am indeed I. Ani. Ani who? He's saying, I am. There is no God besides me. I kill and restore to life. I have inflicted wounds and I will heal. Nothing can be snatched from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and I say, Say, I live forever. Were I to sharpen the lightning of my sword, were my hand to take up justice, were I to turn vengeance back upon my enemies and repay those that hate me, I would have made 
I would have to make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword would devour flesh. From the blood of the slain and the captive, from the curly heads of the enemy. Therefore, O nations, make his people's lot a happy one. For he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will turn back vengeance upon his enemies, and his people will atone for his world. Now this last verse is a very important uh, message. Therefore, even as he disperses Israel among them, God calls out to the nations, Make my people's lot a happy one. Do not deal inhumanely and cruelly with them. Three motives are given for this divine warning. Therefore, O nations, make his people's lot a happy one. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. The dispersed of Israel enter into the midst of the nations as his servants, as bearers of the name of God, with his imprint upon them. And this God, there lives an adventure for every drop of their innocent blood that is shed. He will turn back vengeance upon his enemies. God will cause each violation of the dictates of justice and humanity to fall back upon its predators who by denying the standards of justice and humanity also deny his sovereignty and are therefore his enemies. And, there, and finally, his people will atone for the world and this is the ultimate purpose of the people of Israel the function of God's people to bring atonement to the world which was given to man to rule from the very beginning of time this is Adam he is given the, the job of ruling the world dominion over the earth by according better treatment to his people Thus showing their obedience to God's moral law, the nations are pay homage at last to God's dominion on the earth. Then there will be an end to and an atonement for the sins against justice and humanity committed by those who would deny his supremacy on earth. Thus the treatment accorded by the nations to Israel will be the barometer showing the decree to, by, to which man gives allegiance to God on earth so that the kingdom of God will come when the nations will cease to oppress Israel the admonition to the nations make his people's lot a happy one suggests the following thought it was anticipated that the book of God's teaching carried to the nations by the scattered bearers would become the common property of all the nations a preconception which has indeed come to pass the nations therefore would become aware of God's warning in addition and in equal measure they would come to understand and increasingly put into practice the concept of the one sole God and the principles deriving from this truth the equality and brotherhood of man and man's duty to practice justice and humanity. This assumption would include the presupposition that the book of books, which Israel has carried into the midst of the nation, 
will enlighten and civilize not only the nations but also Israel so that Israel will clear the path to the gateway of its own redemption the divisions observed on this as we read this we have these divisions that you see here and it's this song it's a song that takes us from the from the very beginning of Israel's getting ready to go into the land all the way to the future to the very end of time that we see all of this of what is going to happen of Israel's relationship to God in the world Israel's destiny and all of the, the origins of, of the nation and what the impact of the land is upon those nations and then Israel's prosperity and how Israel reacts to that prosperity and then the downfall caused by sin and then its purpose of the dispersion among the nations and then the ultimate future of Israel and the nations that we look to and we call redemption and these are the divisions of the song that take us from the beginning all the way to the very end of which we are still looking forward to we're still this is we're still in the process of what Moshe was seeing so Moshe came and spoke all these words of this song in the ears of the people he and Hoshea son of Nun when Moshe had finished speaking all these words to all Israel he said to them set your mind earnestly to all the words with which I bear witness to you today that you may charge your children to carry out punctiliously all the words of this teaching for it is not a word empty of you it is your very life and with it you will prolong your days upon the soil to which you will pass over the Yardin to take possession of it on the same day God spoke to Moshe saying go up to this mountain of transitions to Mount Nebo which is in the land of Moab facing Jericho and see the land of Canaan which I am giving to the sons of Israel as a possession and die on the mountain and you that you are ascending and be gathered there to your people even as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you trespassed against me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of contention at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin because you did not sanctify me in the midst of the sons of Israel for only from afar shall you see the land you will not come there not to the land that I am giving to the sons of Israel so we remember that the reason that he spells this out of what why Moshe cannot enter the land and why Moshe has to die the reason that he spells out the spells it out here is so that there will never be a misunderstanding that Moshe was among those that sinned in the wilderness by doubting that God could bring them over into the land or that he rebelled and did not want to go into the land he was not among the rebellious generation that there was a sin of his own that he committed and we're not even really clear on exactly what that was but there was some area where he was not perfect 
in his following of Hashem and there is an there is an opinion that it was an excuse it was an excuse that Hashem had for taking Moshe and in the future when the, the children of Israel of that generation are raised in the resurrection of the dead that Moshe Rabbeinu will be the one who leads them across the Jordan to come into the land at last now does anybody have any questions about this Parsha what we have discussed so far Um, next week is Yom Kippur so I can't we are not going to have a class next week obviously <laughs> but the week after that Bizrat Hashem unless something happens I will let you know if something does happen then we will be um, going over the last Parsha next week if possible yes it is interesting that the Parsha ends with a promise and a hope into the land that I will give the children of Israel yes and also it also is interesting that in the 39th chap in the 39th verse you want to go back notice how he phrases this. <clears throat> this it's the third line I kill and restore to life he doesn't leave it at kill says I kill and restore to life you know how many times we say we, bo- we are born and we die but he doesn't end on a negative note he says I kill and restore to life so this is a hope of the resurrection of the dead for one thing we can see other things in it too I have inflicted wounds and I will heal so you see that also here the promise and the hope just like you said Catherine the promise and the hope and that's what the song is it talks it's an admonition about what has what will happen it's be careful because this is the danger but it's also a song of hope
going to have to ask um, about the software here. When Hashem set up the nation of Israel, once they came to the land, do you know how long they stayed in His grace before they were set upon by the nations? Um, well, the thing is, is, Joshua lived for 110 years. I'm not sure how old he was when they crossed the Jordan. But after the death of Joshua, then they had the problem with the, um, with the wars with the nations trying to settle the land, and that was the times of the judges. And I'm not really sure how long it was, but it was after the death of Joshua that you get this in the in the time of the judges where it would say, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and then would come problems. And they had to have judges come and bring the people back to observance of Hashem, and then everyone would do what was right in his own eyes, and here was and it would be problems all over. When you read the book of Judges, you see this pattern over and over and over. So it was a very, um, it was a real, a time of real problems during the time of the Judges. And then the idea was that there would be a king and it would stabilize the nation. But the idea of having a king was supposed to be after the land was already settled. So they there were there were just problems with this. I see you're typing again. shows that humans have problems keeping their minds straight and with Hashem that's right we do now the last chapter the last parsha is called Zotabracha I think verse 39 could also be used for personal healing and hope yes I believe that's true There is a lot to that verse. The main thing that what we get from this song is, again, the, the idea of calling people to complete adherence to his law but also to an allegiance to Hashem only to completely do away with idolatry to wean ourselves totally from anything that is idolatrous so that's the main theme of this whole song is wrapping it all up 
from the very beginning to the very end of this is the whole idea of the founding of Israel as a nation in the world to bring the whole world to this idea of the oneness of Hashem now Zotabracha is a parsha that I think I've said it before that does not have its own weekly reading it is read at Simchat Torah as we connect the end with the beginning of the Torah reading and so Zotobracha is not normally um, studied as a parsha of its own with its own week but I do want to do it anyway so that we can um, so that we can have that continuation so like I said God willing and I'm not really sure I'm going to admit that to you I'm not really sure what's going to happen but God willing on the 9th of October will be the date that we'll have that Parsha I'm hoping that my daughters are coming to see me during Sukkot and so um, it's going to kind of be up in the air what happens I'll send you an email about what to expect on the 9th and of course next week is Yom Kippur next week is Yom Kippur it's the 10th of Tishrei so if you're fasting for Yom Kippur I wish you a very easy fast and I pray that you come to very profound ideas of your relationship and your connection with Hashem and I would like to hear from you what you have experienced with the holidays and what it's meaning to you because I'm hoping that it is having a profound effect on you and um, like we began the class asking what about your own relationship with Hashem through these next days and, and next couple of weeks please and especially in Yom Kippur it is a good time for having that t- introspection to see inside your own soul of where you do stand with your thinking with your relationship with Hashem and please whatever you do you know, don't if you if it's not where it aligns up with the Torah. If you see something like that, don't get into condemnation on yourself or anything. Just have it as a starting place that you can take it from there and fix it to just progress from there and build on it. None of us are where we're, we need to be. We're all in process and that is what what it means that we're living in mercy that we're all in process we're all developing we're all becoming we're not being yet we're becoming and Hashem knows that that's the way he made us that's the state of the world right now 
please refresh my memory. What is Simchat Torah? Is it the day that commemorates the giving of the Torah? No, Simchat Torah is not the day that commemorates the giving of the Torah. That is Shavuot um, in the spring after after Passover. Simchat Torah is a day that was added by the rabbis to the end of Sukkot. Um, Sukkot is seven days and we added this day on to the end of Sukkot and that's a day when we begin the Torah reading cycle again. And so we just have this time of celebrating it's the happiness. Simchat is happiness. We're celebrating the Torah and we begin the Torah reading cycle again. So on on Simchat Torah we read um, the Zotah Bracha, which is the last parsha, and then we will read the first part of Breshit, so that you go, there's no break, so that there's the end of the last parsha, and then there's the reading of the first part of the of Breshit, so that the cycle just continues. You know, it's a, like um, like the spinning of the scroll. The cycle continues, and it's very interesting. In the in a synagogue, what they do is they will call every man to the Torah. Every man has a chance to come up and say a blessing on the Torah, which is the only time of year that we do that. I mean, during the rest of the year, there are seven aliyot on uh, Shabbat, and they'll come up. They'll call seven men but on Simchat Torah every single man in the congregation is called to the Torah and so they read it they'll read Zotah Bracha over and over and over until every single man has had a chance to say a blessing on the Torah During our meditation, I perceived our relationship as that of a preteen with his father, still under his care and protection, and beginning to look at adulthood like Moses looked at Israel from Mount Nebo. That's very good. And it's good for us to find that honest honesty, honestly be able to see where we're standing. So anyway, that's the end of tonight's um, class, and I, again, wish you to have a very profound Yom Kippur. So thank you for being in the class tonight. Um, Anybody has anything else to say? And I'm ho- I'm planning to in the upcoming classes that we're going to have in starting with Breshit that we're going to be doing meditations like this so that we can deepen our relationship with Hashem and um, deepen our ability to meditate and pray.
Okay. So thank you for being in the class.